Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The home of endurance racing. RadioLeMans.com. Hello and welcome to RadioLamont.com and another one of our Tyler's Long Ones, the longer form interviews invented by Graham Tyler, one of our pit reporters, which still bear his name. Today we're in West London in the very lovely Quattro rooms, which you're getting a little bit of a makeover if you hear anything in the background here. And our victim, sorry, interviewee, is Ollie Jarvis. Ollie, first of all, uh, welcome along to the long one here on RadioLamont.com. When did you start motor racing and... Can you remember when you first got interested in it? For me, I spent most of my youth at racetracks. My father raced in Formula Ford 1600. So, believe it or not, I'm, my big memory is being at the racetracks and playing football. Um, you know, back then I wasn't involved. I was probably too young to, to fully understand and appreciate. So, I used to clear off in a field and, and kick a football around. But about and was that your first? Were you sporty though? Were you interested in football? Was that something that you thought you know you might? Every little boy thinks he's either going to be a spaceman, a fireman, a footballer or a racing driver. Yeah, I've always been very involved with sport, whether it's football, rugby, um, even running, you know, and, and still am today outside of the racetrack. So, um, you know, for me, like I say, I mean, I wouldn't say football was a passion, but it was something I had the opportunity to pursue later in life. But um, I started at sort of four years old in motocross. And again, that all starts back to my father, he spent most of his younger years in motocross. He never had the, the money to, to move across to cars. And very late on in his life, he, you know, when he sort of set up his business and, and had, a, I wouldn't say extra money, because I don't think there was ever such a thing, but um, you know, he found the opportunity to sort of go do Formula Ford 1600. And so I myself started motocross, and about eight years old, I got the opportunity. I could either stay in motocross or I could make the, cro- the step across to cars. And a... Uh, I chose carts, sorry, not cars, carts, and I remember choosing carts, and I'll never forget the day that someone came to pick up my motocross bike, my beloved KX60, and uh, I remember hiding all the new bits, thinking, you know, I'll get a new one soon, but, um, and that, you know, I never looked back from there, Um, from then on, it, I mean, karting was unbelievable, I mean, you look at the guys I'm racing against today, Mm -hmm. a fair few of the Brits I was racing against at eight years old, every weekend, full commitment not just from myself probably more commitment from the parents yes. back then you know they're the ones that have got it you know prepare the car get up early drive the the car and trailer to the car tracks prepare the car because you know sort of eight nine years old you don't have that understand mechanical understanding so it's very much on the father to do that question then do you feel that your early days on two wheels in motocross and the balance uh, and the race experience that you got there helped you when you jumped in to that early karting career i think it all helps more i wouldn't say so much the racecraft because i can't remember 
much that if I'm honest but it's more the you know the speed the getting used to the the speed the adrenaline and can't fall off a cart either can you um well they say that I've cer- <laughs> they say that I've certainly had moments where I, I disagree with you there but um you and the cart parted company yeah and one was more recently actually but uh, we we won't go into that at the moment <laughs> you know there, there was also that side funny enough the the safety factor you know there were a lot of guys getting hurt when I was involved in the motocross and it's not nice to see six seven year olds getting you know broken arms broken legs so but um so where did you start in karting was that cadet karting and then moving up to junior britain senior britain super one etc yeah so cadet karts then a junior intercontinental a oh, right um in fact i think there was tkm in between that mm. and then jika formula a and then on to, to cars and you know with my father's experience we i moved into formula ford which by then and moved on to the ztec engine um, a lot of guys probably made the step straight across to Formula Renault. Unfortunately yeah. for myself, budgets weren't there. But then eventually did make the Formula Renault progression. British Formula 3. I then had the, the incredible opportunity to go to Japan mm. and race in uh, Japanese Formula 3. And, and to be honest, you know that was probably the biggest point in my career to date in the sense that I probably wouldn't have continued motorsport without that opportunity. Just want to take you back then to when you make that first leap from carts into cars into Formula Ford 1600. To an outsider, that doesn't actually look like a big jump because you've done karting, you've been on tracks, you've raced possibly some of the most competitive races you'll ever do in a, in a racing career. But you jump into a Formula Ford car, which looks fairly simple. But having done that myself and done them back to back, the difference between sitting in a car which barely moves and jumping into a Formula Ford is like jumping from a sports car into an SUV. You feel all the movement. How did you get on in those early days of Formula Ford? I have to say, I mean, I think now the progression from a car to, say, a Formula Renault is much easier. Yeah. Because it, it's even from a car to a Formula 3, they're, they're, they're quite similar in their characteristics, whereas... For myself, the, kart from, the jump from karting to a Formula Ford, it, it's a different concept. Mm. There's no slicks, you know, there's no downforce. Yep. So the grip to power is, um, doesn't match, for mm. example. You know, a, a kart's got a, a lot of grip compared to power. It's very similar with a Formula 3 car. Mm-hmm. When you add that downforce, there's a, a lot of grip there. Whereas the Formula Ford, it used to move around, it used to roll. And actually, they, they used to set the car up so it did roll yes. and did move around because it was the quickest way. And you used to drive it very much, I'm not going to say sideways, but you, you did expect you the car to move around mm-hmm. and pitch it in. So it was quite a, a shock, I have to be honest, because that wasn't how you drove, you know, European carts. You know, you know a European cart was set up, the thing's on rails. Yes. You know, the idea is you turn it in and the thing turns in and, and you go on the power and the, it doesn't move. So I've got to say, I think the guys that, that stepped across from from form from karting to Formula Renault found the transition much easier. Yeah. I certainly remember my first few laps were quite daunting, to be honest. And it's not... It's not and how old were you at that point? Uh, 17 years old. Right, so you'd, you were already driving on the road, so a gearbox and a clutch weren't potentially so much of an issue to you? No, and that was one of the, the decisions I think my father took, was that he wanted me to be able to drive on the road, to understand you know, the principle of heel and towing, you know, a skill that's Good. almost died out now. Know. Um, Shockingly. You know, yeah, because they, they were skills, you know, a lot of the guys coming up now probably wouldn't even know what heel and towing oh, is. But, don't. but to drive a Formula Ford fast, it was, you know, it was an important part. And, um, but, yeah, I mean, them first few laps, it, it's not the speed, because, like I say, I mean, if, if you jump... When I even jump into a cart now, mm-hmm. the speed surprises me. Because yes. speed is... 
if you take what it says on the dash 100 mile an hour it, it's it's all relative because if you do 100 mile an hour in an rs6 it feels like nothing mm-hmm. you did a, do it on a mini where you're an inch above the couple of inches above the ground and the, yeah. the things rattling around yeah. it feels like 250 yeah. mile an hour so yeah. it's perspective and you know jumping into a formula ford I mean, I'm not even sure what speeds are, but let's say 120 mile an hour. It mm-hmm. probably didn't feel as quick as a go kart, yeah. In, in, in sort of terms of perspective. But you know, when you turned into the corner and the, the it thing felt like moved, it fell over. Yeah, you know, you turned <laughs> in and you could feel the, the front load and then roll, and then all of a sudden the rear starts to come round, and you've got to balance that on the power. The important lessons, though, in car control, in car setup, um, in racecraft. Now. You're a tall lad now. Were you a tall lad then? And did you harbour, in, even in those early years of the formula racing, ideas of, of going forward and, and going through formula racing? To be honest, I was very small growing up, um, certainly in karting. Mm-hmm. I was um, you know, I was probably one of the smaller drivers. And I'm not sure when the actual growth spurt happened, but I sort of, <laughs> I sort of arrived at Audi and noticed that I, I'm just shy of six foot, which isn't <laughs> ideal. But um, no, height was never an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I guess... Even in karting days, something changed, and it went from a hobby to a potential profession. Yeah, very good. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, I do, you know, there's not an exact point in time I can remember where I can say, you know what, that was a time I thought I could make a career of this. But I think when you put so much effort in, and you're racing, because the crazy thing about karting is, you know, we talk about commitment now in cars, but, you know, we're talking 10, 12 races a year, whereas mm-hmm. karting, it can be... If you really wanted to, you could probably race 50 weekends of a year. Yep. And a lot of the guys in Cadets and Jika were doing, you know, yeah, yeah. we were probably doing 30 to 40 race weekends a year. So, you know, Which would be at least three heats and maybe a couple of finals every weekend. Yeah, you, you'd turn up maybe Friday night, you sort of leave school, dad would pick me up and we'd be straight off to the racetrack. You know, Saturday morning, you, you've got to warm up, mm-hmm. three heats, mm-hmm. you know, and then s- Sunday you've got to... A, pre, a warm-up, a pre-final and a, a final. final. Yeah. So, you know, for me, there's a point where even at an age of 11, 12, you've got to make the decision, is this for fun or is, yeah. or is this serious? And the point that goes along with that, Ollie, is that you've got to start thinking, even at that age, and it's a tough thing to think about in your early teenage years, can my family afford to continue pushing me along because quite quickly even in karting and certainly in formula ford and and the other formula that you did in your later teenage years and in your 20s you know that's a considerable investment it's huge and it's something i probably say you know naively enough i wasn't aware of maybe till you sort of start to get into 12 13 but it's not just financial investment it's it's a lot more than that because I've got three sisters, mm-hmm. you know, and every weekend my parents are at a racetrack with me. That's a weekend they're Good not point. doing something with them. Good so, point. you know, and it is something I'm still very aware of today. There was sacrifices made not just by my parents but by my whole family. And for any race driver, that's the same. Whether everyone's aware of it, I'm not sure. But, mm. you know, it's, it's an investment of time. Yes. Um, you know, we, we never had Sunday dinners because Sunday dinners was during <laughs> race season. You know, it was a rare moment we'd sit down and have a roast dinner. And, yeah, yeah. You know, even today, I can't wait to have a roast dinner because yeah. it's something quite special. So when was it then? So in the karting, you sort of thought, hello, I might be able to make something of this. So was there a point then that you had to sit down with your family, with your mum and dad, and possibly your sisters as well, and say, how do we push this forward? Formula Ford, you mentioned... 
you can you, even in those days you could still probably do that with you and your dad prepping the car but once you get into Renault and Formula 3 you can't do that you, and that's then you're talking about serious financial investment yeah i mean i mean even karting was difficult i i was very lucky that i, I sort of got taken under the wing, under the wing of a tony kart importer yeah. here in the uk o'neills and um you know they looked after us to an extent and then semi works driver then even then yeah, I guess, you know, in terms of the UK, you could say that. And then moved across to what I'd call U- European and world karting and, and got a very good offer from Tony Kart. So that allowed me to, to do it on that stage. But you're right, the moment you then make that progression to cars, you know, there's bits and pieces you can do to keep the cost down. But mm. it does start to to become a burden, you know, unless you're, you know, a millionaire, you know. And it, it really is that bad because, I mean, I was fortunate when I see budgets now they scare me you know and back then they were still large sums of money and huge sacrifices from from the family you know we paid for a lot of it purely by my dad and mum and dad working extremely hard to give me that opportunity but we did something that I doubt many racing drivers have done and I actually took out a very large bank loan you know someone had to underwrite that of course because at the age of sort of 17 18 but I took out a large bank loan to allow me to do Formula 3 in the UK um, it was the only which was how much not the bank loan but how much was F3 in those days what half a million quid something like that yeah I mean Formula 3 in them days a, a competitive drive at the time was half a million I mean I was very lucky and there's there's key sort of things that have happened in my career that have allowed me to continue because there have been I have questioned it I wouldn't say every moment but there's no. been moments where I've certainly questioned it because there's no good chucking away good money after bad no, no. you know I've seen people sell their houses, and, and, and I never wanted that. You know? And I, I knew we struggled. And there was a point at Formula Renault, I was having a, a disastrous time of it, and I rang Dad up and said, look, this doesn't, doesn't make sense anymore. Mm. And um, it's just not happening. And, and I remember him arriving at the track, and he told the team, right, stick him in the other car, because they were a two-car team, and I instantly went a second quick around Brands Hatch Indy. So there was clearly an issue with the car. Had there not been... That could have been the end. That would have been the end. And, and it was that simple. Because and how old were you then, Ollie? Uh, what were we, sort of probably 17, 18? Well, that's old. a massive heads-up sort of thing to do, to be that self-aware. So you haven't got stars in your eyes at this point. It's, it's 17 years old. You, you kind of want to do it, but you don't want to do it at any cost. No, and, and I think, you know, I always maintained a... Um, an education behind me because it's something I, I was very aware of that unfortunately nowadays talent doesn't guarantee you a job I race against some phenomenal drivers in go-karts and you know now they're running kart teams or they're they're you know working in offices and that's not through lack of talent it's through lack of opportunity yeah and um you know like I said I remember being at Brands ringing dad just said you know it doesn't make sense and fortunately there was an issue yep. but had that have not been the case I would have hung up my helmet yep. and I also made the so the following year we made the move to Manor um, one of the best race teams in the UK and I said if I didn't, didn't win the championship again I would have, I would have quit there that's and then. pressure though yeah it's, it's pressure but at some point it's a hard decision to make but how long do you continue you know making investments and seeing no return you know again fortunately went on to win the championship and probably as importantly or maybe even more importantly was I then won the McLaren Autosport Award mm. which 
raised my profile at the time, but not only raised my profile, it also gave me a, a check. You know, and that check. Not a huge one, in fairness. I think was it fifty grand in those days? Yeah, unfortunately, I think I probably got the year with the least amount of money. And yeah. but it, it was fifty thousand. And, and whilst we but, say it's not a huge amount, yeah, but that was only ten percent of a British F three budget, as we've just talked about. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're, you're correct. But again, maybe timing. Mercedes had just moved into Formula Three. Mm-hmm. Budgets were spiraling out of control, mm-hmm. and nobody wanted to be on the Mugen Honda. Uh. So. Who was running the Mugen Honda? Carling. Mm-hmm. Another fantastic team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we did a very good t- deal with Trevor. Um, as I say, they were not the in-team for probably the first time in, in many years. He got a, a very well-funded sort of crew of drivers. So mm-hmm. we were able to do what I'd say, you know, was a very competitive deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we had a fantastic year. With your bank loan? With my bank loan, you know. So you take the 50000 from from winning the McLaren Order Sport Award, you add that to the bank loan, and you're starting to make a budget. I mean, and in fairness to Trevor, at the end of the year, we had a, we had a very strong year. We finished second to, believe it or not, Mike Conway. Um, you know, and we probably, once we sort of, you know, at the time I probably would have said once we, we got the Honda working and, and we made progress, but at the same time, I guess... As I progress, we were definitely the stronger the second half of the year. I don't think the the Honda and Honda Mugen Enja was a match at the time. Mm-hmm. It had its, you know, strengths. It had its weaknesses. But um, certainly by the end of the year, we had a, a very strong package. And you know, we spoke a lot to Trevor at the end about going to, to Formula Renault 3.5 with him. But mm-hmm. I wasn't aware that you know we were probably not as up to date as we should have been with mm-hmm. with payment and. You know, to, to be fair to Trevor, he was very good and he'd never mentioned it to me, which is why I wasn't aware. And, yeah. you know, my father had also kept it from me. So, mm-hmm. And then when I read that Trevor had filled his, his seats, I couldn't yeah. believe it. You, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. you know, it was only later on I understood what had happened and, yeah. and why. But then I got the opportunity from Tom's in Japan. And I guess, I mean, I've heard drivers say they've turned down opportunities in Japan. And, and for me, I, I can't understand how a driver who wants a professional career in motorsport could turn down being paid to drive a Formula 3 car. It's a good point to sort of take a breath. We're on the long one here on RadioLamont.com with Ollie Jarvis and talking about the key point, one of the key points at least, in Ollie's early career, the transition to a pro driver being paid. It's, it sounds like it's a no-brainer, but you know, as you've just said, people turn it down... How hard did you have to look at it? How easy or difficult a decision was it for you? And what was the thought process in doing that? Because it is a, if nothing else, it's a big move to go that far away from home. Yeah, I mean, for me, the thought process, once I realised that there wasn't opportunities in with Trevor and Carling, and um, we certainly weren't ever going to get close to a GP2 budget, mm. there wasn't a thought process. It was, right, let's do this. And I remember... I remember arriving in Japan and I'd given it so little thought. Once I'd arrived at the airport, I didn't know how I was getting to Tom's because <laughs> it, it was just so simple. I mean, I'm quite laid back anyway. Um, but who wouldn't go live in a foreign country mm-hmm. and experience something different? And you were how old at this point? Cool, I've got to work this one out. I was probably, yeah, 20 years old, you know. And, you know, I'd, I'd been off to uni, I'd lived away from home and, you know, I'd, I'd been travelling with karting it. It didn't matter where it was. It was an opportunity to, to pursue a dream. Well, that's a completely different philosophy, a different culture, 
uh, racing is racing, but everything around it very very different. Yeah, but if you if you want to sort of make a career or or you want to pursue your dream, then you make sacrifices and and you know maybe it, some people would see it as a sacrifice. I saw it as an opportunity and an experience. I mean, and what a what an experience! Some people go travelling. I got to live and get paid to, to to sort of be in one of the coolest countries in the world. And the racing side of things just gives you more experience, and of course, you're being paid for it. And it puts you in the eyes of a number of manufacturers because the racing scene in Japan, for those that don't know, uh, and ask people like Eddie Irvine, is first of all quite well paid still and also very well followed by the what we call the OEMs, the uh, uh, original equipment manufacturers. Yeah, I mean, for me, there's, there's sort of two things. You can go to Japan and there's potential to have a sort of 20-year career in Japan mm. in its own right. Still? Know? Yeah, and still there's guys out there, you know, I was fortunate enough to go back last year. There are guys that, you know, without a doubt could jump on the WEC grid or the Formula 1 grid and be right up there. You know, there's top, top drivers out there who, like myself, probably didn't have the finances mm. to go whether it be F3000, GP2 at the time. And what were you thinking right now when you got there and you got yourself settled? Were you still thinking, oh, hello, Formula One could still be on the horizon here? Or were you thinking, I could quite happily do this 20 years over here and, and be a pro racing driver? No, I was working on a, a Formula Nippon as it was back then and, and Super GT deals. Um, you know, I fully intended to, to make a career in Japan. It just so happened that we went on to win the, the Macau Grand Prix. Mm. But... Uh, Funnily enough, that, that was that's an F three. That was F three. Still is F three. Yep. yep. For, sorry, Formula three, probably seen as the World Cup. Yeah. Before I went to Japan, I'd had a contact with Audi, mm-hmm. and they'd sort of wanted me to go test. Unfortunately, I'd already signed a deal with, or not unfortunately, actually, I'd already signed a deal with Tom's Toyota, mm-hmm. and I was always someone. If I've signed something, you know, it would be easy to, to sort of. And what was that to go and test then? Then it would have been a DTM car. Right. Okay. So, but I, I chose. You know. I went back to them and said, look, I'm already sorted. Mm-hmm. I've got a contract in place. And then, you know, but I tried to stay in contact. And then when I won Macau that year, we managed to make contact again. I got offered the test in the DTM car. Or I say test, a, a shootout, as it was back then. So, you know, it was, the contact was made a year earlier. But mm-hmm. actually, you know, I delayed it myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was probably a risk in itself. Because, mm-hmm. you know, manufacturers don't always ask Come twice. Not twice, yeah. no. But uh, you know, certainly winning the Macau Grand Prix sort of probably opened that door again that otherwise maybe would have been shut. But up until that point, you know, I'd, I'd got contracts for Formula Nippon and, um, and was working on a Super GT deal. So the shootout comes. Um, that's another turning point in your life. What was your mental attitude as you were going into that? Again, you, you've said you're a very laid-back person and you seem to approach these things quite realistically in terms of what might happen what might not happen does that mean that you don't put pressure on yourself no i i put pressure on myself um you know because there's such a desire there that naturally you put pressure on yourself i don't feel the pressure from outside um i would say 90 95 of it comes from within um but at that time i was in a great place in my career i'd got contracts you know on the table I was also racing in the A1 GP. Mm-hmm. I'd just jumped in the car and won the first race. But um, they'd been try- trying very hard to do so for a, for a long while. And they'd been unfortunate. Robbie, had, you know, and Robbie Kerr at the time had done a great job. It just so happened that everything had fallen in line for when I jumped in the car. You know, as sometimes can happen in motorsport. And, um, you know, so I was in a, a 
riding you know a wave of confidence let's say so I turned up at the test at Almeria and for me it was a race car mm-hmm. steering wheel four wheels mm-hmm. and I just jumped in it and I remember feeling very comfortable and doing the job which you know at the time I was very aware not all drivers were able to do no and I have to say I think one of the key things was the McLaren Autosport Award having driven a variety of different cars and certainly maybe even going back to the Formula Ford days mm. you know you were able to adapt yep. and that was key and I remember at the end of the test you know these sort of engineers asked me straight out you know we're a bit worried are you still harbouring ambitions of Formula 1 I said no you know the, and was that true or were you telling them what you thought they wanted to hear I mean if a if someone in, at the time, you know, let's say BMW who were in it at the time or a Mercedes or, you know, if they'd have come knocking on the door, you know, of course, you wouldn't say no. But I wasn't, let's say, actively pursuing because there, there were no opportunities. I wanted to, to race. I'd followed DTM for, for a long time. It's highly respected within the motorsport community, especially in the UK. And so, you know, like I said to them at the time, if there's an offer on the table, then I'd jump at the chance. Had you driven a DTM car as part of the, of the McLaren BRDC Young Driver uh, shootout as well? Yep, there's, Mercedes have had a, a long-term involvement in it, so it's one of the cars you get to drive. So I'd had 10 laps experience or, or 20 laps experience, but um, you know, I was up against some, some guys with a couple of years' experience mm. in DTM or who had done the test before, so I wouldn't say I was that much further equipped than, than anyone else, but... At the end of the test, I got given a very good idea that they were very interested and, and would be in contact. So, so at this point, you start thinking about opening a Euro account and learning to speak German. Pretty much. I mean, <laughs> I remember I got, a, I got a phone call sooner after from, from Dr. Ulrich just saying, great, we'd love to have you on board. You know, and, I remember and it was Dr. Ulrich himself who rang you, was it? Yeah. That's very cool. That, that's amazingly cool. And I remember putting the phone down and, and thinking, that's amazing. And he'd said to me, he was going to give me a call sort of end of January and just to sort everything out. And I remember end of January came and then I started to question whether I'd, I'd interpreted everything right, <laughs> whether, whether he really did say they were interested. But fortunately, um, you know, they made contact in February and it was the case. You know, and that's the start of my, uh, of my Audi career. You mentioned that DTM is not for everybody. And some very good drivers who have been very successful in other forms of motorsport, I won't embarrass anybody by naming them, have not been able to get on with DTM, either with the car, the style of racing, because it's kind of a cross between close quarters touring car racing and sort of semi-endurance racing with the technology of effectively a formula car underneath there with a, with a body on top of it. It's a real hybrid, and I mean that in not necessarily in terms of electrical hybrid, but a hybrid of of different uh, of different uh, formula, if you like. Um, but you did get on with it, and it seemed like you you quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I had a, a fantastic first two years. Um, the way the DTM worked back then was that there were old cars yeah. and, and new cars. So to to save on development costs, what they would do is they would only develop four new cars each year, and then the at the time so there'd be four new cars four old cars and I, w- I was in an older style car and we had some huge success considering I mean back then there was gaps of up to a second between yep. the new and the old cars so we were fighting for seventh eighth place and we were reliant on the, the the new car drivers making errors or making mistakes but you know I got a pole position and, and a couple of podiums so mm-hmm. I absolutely loved the car and for me it was an extension of a Formula 3 car yes very stiff 
plenty of aero and great fun to drive. Um, and actually underneath, when you look at them, they don't look dissimilar from a formula car in terms of that big carbon, at the time, that big carbon fibre bit. In the, you're almost sitting in the middle of the car anyway. It's like a Formula 3 or a Formula 3000 too. Yeah, and, and there's, you know, in terms of lap time, there's very little difference as well. So I think someone coming, that's quite often why you see, for example, a Formula 1 driver struggling because that step down is much harder than that, let's say, step across or step up. Yeah. And, um, but I had a, a great, great time, first two years. Like I say, every time I stepped in the car, we were probably outperforming where we should be. I then got the, the opportunity to step up to a new car, which you'd think should be really the start of something special. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can laugh at it now, but for some reason it just didn't click. Um, whether it was the, the new car itself, um, I just always had lots of understeer, and it was something I, I never yeah. enjoyed. I could never get the car to work the way I wanted and when you're talking gaps of a tenth of a second mean you know you miss out on the you're in tenth yes and your teammate just sneaks through to the top eight shootout at the time mm. but then goes to put it on pole yep. you know it's a bit of a killer i have to say and like i say things just didn't work out i wasn't did that hit your confidence holly yeah i mean it's easy to say no but yeah it did you know you go from from sort of being the the up-and-coming guy to all of a sudden you're the one that everyone's looking to replace mm. you know and it's doggy dog out there, and the old adage is you're only as good as your last result. In DTM, particularly, the churn of drivers of those people who don't perform is is quite high. Yeah, there, there, there is a. I mean, Audi have always been very loyal, but there is a turnover of drivers, and you know, like I said, I knew the situation because I'd been that up and coming guy, yes. you know, and I know once you start to get results, you always focus on who you're going to replace, and it's the way it should be. You know, there should be this. I'm not saying every year, but if there's a guy that's outperforming at the time in an older car, they should make the step up. Things are slightly different now, of course, where everybody's in an equal machinery. And actually, I would say it's much easier now. Whereas before, if you made the step up and say you had a bad year or two bad years, there was nowhere for you to go because there'd be someone in an old car. Other than out the door. Yeah, yeah, there'd be someone in an old car wanting your seat. And very rarely would they then say, move you down to a, to an old car yeah. I mean I know sort of Gary had the situation but that was through other circumstances yes. stepping yeah. across to Formula 1 yeah, and, yeah, and that yeah. sort of thing but um, whilst this was all going on I'd actually I'd been trying to make the move across to, to Le Mans yeah. and you know probably a lot of people won't believe my version of events but it, it is the case I remember going to watch the race in 2010 mm-hmm. and oh, was that the first time you'd been there? first time I'd followed it but it was the first time I'd been and I went as a spectator mm-hmm. Absolutely loved it. I yeah. mean, the place is magical. For me, going to watch motor racing quite difficult if I'm not involved. Um, but to go watch Le Mans, I mean, I remember going out to the Porsche curves at three in the morning, mm-hmm. four in the morning, and um, I mean, the cars through there. When you when you see them, it's incredible. Even into turn one, when you see the brakeless light up yeah. and glow at night, I mean, that is magical. But um, at the t- at the time, my DTM career, you got sort of Mike Rockefeller and. Um, Premat, who mm. were doing the European Le Mans series, yep. you know, and they were doing the, the double, yep. also Tom Christensen at the time. Yeah, yeah. So I was pushing really hard to get in the Le Mans car, and unfortunately, with the way things happened with the economy and the reduction in the, the sort of uh, championships that Audi were doing, the opportunity didn't come. But I got very close to, to stepping into, let's say, a Le Mans drive before I did. Um, in the end, it, it took me actually sort of going off, I wouldn't say on my own Audi, Audi helped. But uh, I drove with Collis in the R10. And that really paved the way. Um, and the, the reason being was, at the time, they'd reduced the, they'd taken away the Le Mans test day. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, probably not ideal to bring up but Mike Rockefeller didn't have a great first experience in Le Mans I'm no. not sure if you remember yes I remember yeah. he, he went out and on his first lap out he stuck it in the barriers at Tete Rouge yes and uh, probably one to forget and mm. it really highlighted how important experience is yep. you know and it's it is a lot of pressure to, to stick a sort of young guy with inexperience into Le Mans 24 hours because for anybody that doesn't appreciate it is huge pressure. Yes. There is a lot of attention on And there's you. a lot going on in the week. In fact, actually getting into the car, McNish always says, getting into the car was his alone time yep. because that was the time that he could get down to his job. The rest of the peripheral stuff, whilst important from a manufacturer point of view, is a distraction for you guys. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's very important we do it. But like what Alan says is exactly right. The moment you get in that car, you can focus on what you're good at doing. Yeah, and it... It's, I wouldn't say it's the time you relax, but it's the time that you can just focus on doing what you consider to yes. be the, the core of your job. Yes. You know, and, and like I say, going back to Mike, that incident sort of highlighted you know, that you know, it's not easy to step in as a rookie, especially if you don't have that test day. Yes. You know, nowadays, they insist that you achieve so many laps before doing the race, whereas back then that wasn't the place. No. And, and I have to say, being able to do the race previously was a huge help yeah. and it certainly opened the door and you know and it was the reason I did it yeah. you know because I wanted to make yeah. that step across and speaking from Alan and, and guys like that you know they were very aware and very opinionated on where I should be trying to direct my career and you know for me it was exactly the right decision um, I loved it still didn't happen overnight mind you no you know it, I have to think how many years three years I was mm. part of just Spa and Le Mans which is which is tough. You know, I'm not going to lie. You've got two opportunities to shine, of which one of them quite often you run a different aero setup. Yeah. So, you know, it basically leaves Le Mans. And the, and the other issue is if you're not in the car as much as the other guys, all of a sudden you're expected to jump in this car and perform at the just same level. Well. <laughs> and, people, and people judge you on that. Yes. You know, and it, it's not just yourself. You know, it has... Audi have taken a huge step forward in producing three identical cars but um, you've got to think the engineers the mechanics they're not as used to working as a crew together you know the drivers with the engineers so your learning time is during the Le Mans week yes you know and by the time you get to Saturday morning you need everything to be running perfectly you did some GT stuff as well though with the RA LMS and did quite a lot of development with that and testing at places like Monza in the, uh, without the chicanes and such like yeah, I mean, that's the great thing. I've, I've always been busy. You know, even when my, what I call my main project was only two races, Audi have always kept me busy, whether it be with sort of Blanc Pain or, you know, the, the sprint series. And, and that's a great thing. Again, driving different cars, getting different experience. And it, it's something, you know, I even love to do now. You know, if I get the opportunity, I'm still happy or would love to jump in a GT car, let's say. And it, it's important. And especially doing only the part program it was very important to keep race experience you know to do qualifying sessions so you don't lose your race sharpness because mm. it's all very good being in you know we were in the car quite a lot testing and of course we had Spa and Le Mans but you know it's important you stay race sharp so that if you do get that opportunity to move up you're ready mm. serious question then try and take your mind back to when you were let's say you were carting on your first jumped into Formula Ford you probably neither knew nor cared about Le Mans at that point from there to, to where you are now is a, is a huge step you've worked hard for it when you look at it now how do you feel about how your career's 
developed and where it's going to go for the next period of time that would mirror that because you've got plenty of time in front of you I hope so yeah I mean you know it wouldn't be bad to go on as long as Tom or Dindo (laughs) (laughs) but um, I'm hugely proud but um, not just for myself but like I said I mentioned it earlier I feel like it's a family achievement you know it's not just myself it's a real family thing and it's nice to see that there's been reward for for the hard work and sacrifices that were made Um, it's crazy because I feel like to some extent a major part of my career has not ended but I feel like I'm at a point where I'm just starting again again yeah so you know everything that's happened to now I feel like has got me to the point I wanted to be and now it's almost a clean sheet of paper and that chance to to rewrite my CV and and my racing history Um, because for me where I am is exactly where I want to be you know as long as sport car is around in its current form or, or even in an improved format, this is exactly where I want to be. I mean, I often get asked by, by people outside motorsport, you know, what do you want to do, where do you want to go? And it, it's like, I am, at the, I am at the top. You know, there is... Everybody wants to compare WEC to Formula 1, and it's understandable because we're at a great point where we are comparable, you know, because mm-hmm. we have reached a an area where you know people are seriously looking at us as a threat to formula one which is you know i don't feel that's the case at all i had a chat with someone the other day on on twitter and i love formula one Mm. you know and the two sports are very different in in concept and and also fan base to some extent Mm. but but why can't fans of formula one also love the wc and sports car they've both got something unique to offer but we're in a, a real golden era of sports car racing and there is nowhere else i want to be um you know if i can stay in Win a, win a few Le Mans and a, a few world championships I'd certainly be a very happy man but you know take nothing for granted nowadays mm. the competition is so high that you can't guarantee anything no. um, I remember leaving Silverstone you know I was in a car with my two teammates and we were saying you know how great it was that we've got a competitive package mm-hmm. but even with that to win a race this year you cannot afford a mistake no. you've got to be 110% on yeah. it because there is six cars out there that all have the capabilities at every race of winning and you know who knows maybe Nissan will will make that more in the Mm. Mm. it is incredible you know there's going to be very few opportunities to to win a race and you've got to take them opportunities when you get them well thank you very much for spending the time with us to do this long one on RadioLeMond.com and um it's nice to hear you say that you feel you're at the start of another part of your career. Maybe that means we can talk to you again in the future on another long one about how you feel your career's gone since then. Um, Ollie Jarvis, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.